0: Welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking with Michael Brown about his study of the Enlightenment in 18th century Ireland. Michael, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having
0: me, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well,
1: I'm um, a native of Dublin in Ireland, um, but I now work at the University of Aberdeen, having moved over here about 10 years ago. And my um, discipline is uh, in history, but my interests lie across a set of kind of interdisciplinary boundaries between history, philosophy and uh, literature. My real interests are in the uh, development of moral and political philosophy and thinking about social order, if you like, in uh, the 18th century. And my concerns span Ireland, Scotland and Britain more broadly. So I think there's a range of things that I uh, try and attend to. But the Irish Enlightenment is a major part of uh, my concerns. So that's what's partly bringing me to think about this problem in this book.
0: That was one of the things that I noticed as I read the book was how those themes of order and civility and and, and manners really do uh, stand out in your your coverage of the Enlightenment. I I was wondering, what was it that led you to write uh, this overview of the Enlightenment uh, when you did?
1: Well, I think its origins lie in part in the work I did for my PhD. Uh, I wrote a, a study of um, the S- Irish-Scottish philosopher Francis Hutcheson, who is known really as being the teacher of the economist Adam Smith, but himself had developed a very interesting set of ideas about uh, moral philosophy. He had concepts of uh, an internal moral sense, that people have the same sense of justice and of Uh, right and wrong, as they have a sense of colour and a sense of smell. And in writing about that, I was interested in the ways in which uh, Hutchison had been shaped by his experience teaching uh, in a Presbyterian academy in 18th century Dublin, where Presbyterianism was under some of the penal codes that uh, the Anglican community had established so he was um, somewhat, uh, as I describe in that book, uh, an established outsider to Ireland's social order. And it struck me that one of the things that was missing out of uh, my, my understanding of uh, that period was the ways in which Ireland was generating Enlightenment discussion. Um, Hutcheson can, can be almost termed the, the father of the Scottish Enlightenment, and yet much of his actual writing emerged during his period in Dublin. When he goes to Scotland, he becomes an academic and gets terribly busy um, and f- fails to write some of his major works. So in a sense, that w- what I was looking at is, is a kind of missing context for Hutchison. And as I did that, it, it became evident to me that, in fact, there was a story that hadn't really been told about the ways in which the whole of the Enlightenment played itself out in Ireland. We know about a Scottish Enlightenment. We certainly know about a French Enlightenment. But the idea of an Irish Enlightenment is one that I frankly found people were meeting with a degree of skepticism. So I set out in search of how the ideas of the Enlightenment might have informed, inflected and been generated within Ireland in the 18th century.
0: You begin your book by talking about that absence. And, And I was wondering if you could speak a bit as to why you think that absence was there, because as you mentioned, we've had there's been many books written about the Enlightenment in general. Uh, the Enlightenment in various uh, countries, the Enlightenment in various contexts. Why was there such a gap for uh, Ireland?
1: Well, I think there's two things that are going on there, Mark. I think one, the first is a kind of intellectual hangover from the world of the 19th century discussions of what Irishness is and what it constitutes. There is an anxiety, if you like, about um, what Matthew Arnold would think of as, as the kind of Irish, the Celtic spirit being prone towards uh, literature and poetry, and that the Enlightenment, with its concentration in its traditional vocabulary in reason and the life of the mind, uh, really didn't sit with that kind of caricature of, of Irish cultural life. So, in that regard, I think there was a, a, a kind of a tendency to think about Ireland as a place in which the Enlightenment didn't really have uh, any 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 hold. In the cultural engagement, the Irish mind to use richard kearney 's helpful phrase um, really sits against the kind of idea of a Celtic spirit and so exploring that problem of of the emergence of an Irish mind of thinking about what how people thought about things rather than how they they wrote artistically about it was one of the considerations. I think the other thing that was driving forward the the um, historiography was the um, experience of of um, Trying, or the, the problem of trying to explore sectarian culture. Uh, much of the concern of Irish historians, rightly in many ways, through to uh, the, 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 uh, the the peace process in Ireland was to try and explain sectarian conflict, where it had come from, what its origins were, and why it was that Ireland had, had found itself in a, in a situation in which there, were, uh, there was sort of uh, a conflict on the island. Um, which was partly informed, not wholly informed, but partly informed by sectarian divides between Catholic and Protestant, so if you look at the literature on eighteenth century Ireland, you will find studies of the Catholic middle class of presbyterian proto industrialization, and many of the things that we were thinking w- w- that would be commonly moved away from issues of religion were integrated in a religious discourse in in our literature and I think I, mean, I do remember um, the kind of the book began its life in a kind of um, post-peace process stage. So I think this is a kind of product of that, of of, of a new way of thinking perhaps about Irish intellectual life and historical life in in a way that I was concerned to try and find a new vocabulary for talking about Irish history, which didn't fall back on necessarily the definitions of Catholic and Protestant and nationalist and unionist which are in many ways concerns of the 19th century and not the 18th. So how do we write about the 18th century without the 19th century getting in the way was one of the problems I was trying to think about.
0: Mm-hmm. And as you write about it, though, you really have to touch back upon those things. And I was thinking here about how you structure the Enlightenment in Ireland, how you, while you're trying to move past that that traditional lens, if you will, but you talk about issues of, say, uh, the Enlightenment, as it touched upon religion, or uh, the Enlightenment in the political context, and there is uh, so much interaction between the two. It's, it's it, what you describe is an incredibly complicated uh, uh, set of engagements.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge, in a sense, is to write a book about Ireland where you don't have to have domestic knowledge to make sense of it. Um, the issue is, 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 in one sense, to try and situate the Irish. Uh, circumstances and the Irish developments in a way that is comprehensible to other Enlightenment literatures. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, while you know, it's clear that the confessions um, of Catholicism, of Presbyterianism and of of Anglicanism had a presence on the island and you give them their due. um, Part of the discussion of the book is the ways in which the the confessional life of eighteenth century Ireland could intersect with ideas about Enlightenment discussion of of tolerance of uh, social engagement um, of cosmopolitanism, which would allow for those things not to be the defining terms on which social life and social order rests. The part of the tra- that the story is, of course, then about the ways in which the politics of the establishment of confession plays out in such a way as to hamper the. F- the, the, the development of enlightenment discourse and ultimately, as the book concludes, um, the 19th century reconfigures the problem in such a way as 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 to suggest that a, a new kind of, of sectarian identity takes hold. And we start to think about Catholic and Protestant as giving us a politics. Um, my suggestion is that in the 18th century, uh, there was a moment in time where uh, that was... Uh, that there was a door that opened that might not have have led down that road that it closed again is is not a uh, is is a is a matter of of historical fact
0: it's fascinating that the way you just framed it because it is it helps to explain the way that you break the uh enlightenment in ireland down to three phases the religious enlightenment uh the social enlightenment and the political enlightenment you have the, the religious enlightenment which i'd like for you to elaborate on just a minute uh as sort of the the sort of the door opening and then the social enlightenment being where in a sense they are, that you're seeing that engagement across uh, confessional lines. And then that political phase is when the door closes.
1: Yeah, I think that would be a fair characterization. And I think one of the, one of the things that that posits is the possibility that in a sense, and this is another set of agendas in a sense, but what that suggests then is that there is a, a difference between as I try and play out in both the introduction and the conclusion, the the, the 17th century understanding of, of religious and confessional conflict and the 19th century variant. And there was a period in time in which, in a sense, the story of Ireland might have taken different paths and different roads. but that So there isn't something intrinsic about the Irish condition that leads us to religious conflict. The 17th century and the 19th century aren't kind of fused in some direct sense. So when we think about the kind of um, the way in which Irish history is commonly, has, has been commonly written as a story of religious tension and religious conflict, we have to give due uh, weight to those moments when other opportunities were open. And I see some of the middle decades of the 18th century as one such moment in time.
0: I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a bit upon your description of how the moment opened, the, the, the religious enlightenment. And uh, what was going on within uh, the religious life of Ireland during this period and within the uh, three major religious groups that you described, the, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans and the Catholics?
1: Sure. And the premise of the, the, the opening section of the book is that in many ways, Ireland just commonly seen as a kind of, you know, provincial location. Um, it's a Western island on the uh, you know on the seaboard into the atlantic it was in fact in this period um at the absolute center of 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 the final phases of a kind of 17th century wars of religion um following the kind of work of of people like jga pocock and so on the suggestion is that with you know the 1715 treaty of utrecht but even earlier in the period from 1688 to 1691 ireland had experienced a kind of the final close of a, of a wars of religion, which saw the displacement of and an exile of of a Catholic monarch, and it's and the replacement by William of Orange, as a, as as a as a Protestant monarch onto the kings of kingdom on the thrones of, of of Great Britain and Ireland, so England, Scotland, and Ireland. The fact that Ireland was a venue for that conflict only accentuates the need, in a sense, for a new kind of settlement. That the kind of that the, the People had simply died for all of this on the fields of Ireland, uh, suggested that there needed to be a new way to rethink uh, the puzzle of social order. And what the opening section of the book tries to explore is the way the generation of people who had gone through the trauma of the War of the Two Kings reached out to ideas which we now identify as enlightenment ideas and enlightenment ways of thinking to articulate new modes of uh, understanding social order, political order, and moral conduct. So to take an example, what we see with uh, the Anglican community, who ultimately succeeded in the political conflict, is that a generation of thinkers like Barclay and uh, um, William King, they move towards a position of effectively a kind of empirical justification of things as they are. Uh, that history had played out. This is the consequence of a set of actions. So William King or Robert Molesworth or William Molyneux all write histories which help define the position of Ireland as it currently stands. And I look to to the ways in which, in the first three chapters, the different confessions of the country uh, reach towards different modes of enlightenment practice to um, explore their condition and to articulate what they saw as a as the the right social form of organization. Um, I think this is to backstep a little bit, but part of the definition of what I suggest the Enlightenment is about is a move towards a set of methods and approaches uh, to the world. So we begin with, you know, if you begin by thinking about the human being as as the kind of basic unit of analysis, as I put it in the book, The human has different ways of responding to the external world. You can um, think about your experience and build a kind of understanding of the world based on that experience and effectively work through an inductive method, which um, is the ways in which predominantly the Anglican community responded. You can uh, equally use your your rational faculties and, and develop a deductive method of approach to a problem. And that was commonplace amongst the Presbyterians. uh, The the, the suggestion rests in the book. Um, And similarly, there is the possibility of simply having what you might describe as speculative free thought, a kind of uh, free ranging approach to uh, knowledge generation. And that was less well taken up. But you find a scattering of it amongst what we now think of as deists and free thinkers uh, who I identify from across the different confessions. So the the aim of the first part of the book is to look at how the different communities, the religious communities, took off different methods and different approaches to the puzzle of social order and reached in certain cases for enlightenment methods to um, navigate their way through the, the complexity of their situation. And in each case, I try and suggest that different communities had a different kind of weight put on um, the methods that they used. But you'll find experimentation right across the board. All the communities have examples of all the different kinds of methodological approach. It's very clear that this is a period of flux and of um, real experimentation in thought. And so that's, that's the premise of that first part of the book, is that we have a question of kind of religious and social order and that there's a set of methods that are available. And I try and explore how each of the different communities availed of those methods to produce something like an Enlightenment discussion.
0: What what fascinated me when I was reading that was there was almost a common theme. It was a little bit less the Presbyterians I felt, but it was still I think there to some degree, uh, of of sort of an insecurity. And in the case of the Catholics, it seemed perfectly understandable. They had come out on the losing end of the War of the Two Kings. While they were the majority population, they were now bereft of any of, of political power and and and, and social standing. And so they, you describe the the, the psychological pressure that was created of, uh, upon them by this, and, and how that forces them to adapt. But the Anglicans are, are, are no happier, as you just, as you just mentioned. They they they're, they're there's a recognition that while they came out on top, you know there's is is, is is a you know a foundation uh, uh, built on sand, and that it, it really is a, a degree of uneasiness. Whereas, with, and with the Presbyterians, you, you have this sense of ideas coming in that are coming in from the non-subscribers who are really uh, forcing a, a, a reconsideration of a lot of the tenets that that they've held for so long.
1: That's right. I mean, I think the, the the point of the first part of the book is, in a sense, that the the challenge that the Enlightenment sets down, or that, that and and indeed that the War of the Two Kings more formidably sets down, is one that none of the Different confessions conduct. Um, in each case, what you find is that there are challenges to the the, the, the mindset of the confessions, and that one of the, I, one of the reasons I think this is, is, is of interest is in a sense that traditionally Irish history in large. And I know I'm talking Irish history as a as a large scale thing and as a kind of entity unto itself. But quite commonly, you will find studies of the Anglican community which are separate from and distinct from. Um, a study of the Catholic community. And what I found when I looked across the whole spectrum was that the Enlightenment wasn't something that was happening in one or other of the confessions. It was happening within all of them. And it's only by taking that kind of horizontal view that you could see the Enlightenment happening. What was looking like, as you suggest, um, non-subscription, a controversy about whether or not you ought to subscribe to the Articles of Faith articulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that... Discussion about subscription sat alongside the emergence of a kind of latitudinarian, low church wing in the Church of of, of Ireland. Um, And equally, so what was read up as a kind of church history in both cases, when you sat them in parallel, they had very striking similarities that suggested that was part, part of what was taking hold was a concern for what happens when you read scripture rationally. How does that play out? What kind of faith do you end up with? What kind of social order do you end up with? So, the Enlightenment is something that happens across the piece. But by concentrating on one or other church history, you tend to miss that big picture.
0: And yet, what, the other thing that looms large in terms of the way you periodize it is, and you did refer to this in the chapters on the religious Enlightenment, is how the shadow of the War of Two Kings was very much present and visible. To that generation, because they lived through it, you get to around 1730, and when you when you introduce this, the uh, the second phase, the social enlightenment, and you describe how now you're talking about a generation of people who have grown up for whom the war was not a living memory, and who at the same time have been. Uh, for many of them, uh, to some level, exposed to the ideas of the Enlightenment, and they begin to adopt a very different perspective on so many events. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that transition to the Social Enlightenment and what uh, themes and ideas were emerging during this period.
1: Sure. I mean, I think you're right. I think one of the key issues um, at stake in this is the question of generational change. That. In a sense, when you hit around 1730 or thereabouts, many of the figures who had led Ireland um, intellectually, politically, socially through the process of uh, reconstruction, if you like, after the wars, uh, they leave the stage either through death or retirement or so on. And a new uh, community, uh, a a new leadership takes hold. The other issue that I think becomes absolutely critical in this is that, in a sense, part of the puzzle changes where the first gener- that first generation of enlightenment uh, thinkers were working under the shadow of, of uh, immediate political confessional conflict um, by the 1730s the problem is becoming one of of economic uh, crisis so you have a series of uh, food dearths in the 1720s late 1720s um, which culminates ultimately that cycle culminates in the in the uh, famine years of the early 1740s. So there's a real question, if you like, about how, if you to, to put it kind of slightly uh, uh, trite way, the question moves from can we protect the citizenry to uh, can we provide for them? That then changes the, 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 um, the dynamic of the Enlightenment. And what emerges, I suggest, is a set of languages uh, which I describe as the discourse of civility, which includes questions of political economy. And of economic improvement, but also sits alongside concerns for social uh, deportment or politeness and and, and, a, and a kind of language of of social interaction so what you 're getting is is a sudden anxiety about the need to uh, produce food and uh, the material goods necessary for uh, survival. And that pushes people into thinking about new ways and new modes of understanding the the puzzle of Irish social order. The other thing to say about that is that the, the consequence of that move towards a discourse of civility is that it sets up a series of opportunities. Because ultimately, if you are looking for how you might want to improve estate management on your uh, estate, if somebody has a good idea, it really doesn't matter whether they're... Catholic, Protestant or dissenter, what you're looking for is a good idea. And so that opens up the possibility of social interaction in a very different way than when you're puzzling over the questions of confessional uh, identity and dogma, as you were in the previous period.
0: As you put it, the, the, this emphasis on civility helps to bridge the confessional divide. So you start to see more of that, that social interaction. Ireland is sort of gelling as a society on, on, on some level.
1: That's right, and you can start to see evidence of that. Uh, I think in the in the emergence of a whole range of of um, social institutions that emerge in the in the period from about seventeen thirty to seventeen eighty. So uh, perhaps most explicitly, I try and uh, lay out the, the the kind of map of that in a section on in, a, in the chapter on club life and associational life, so that if you like that, that that period is bookended between the emergence the, the the creation of the Dublin society at one end and and the uh, emergence of the uh, royal Dub- the royal irish academy at the, at the at the far end in the 1780s and they kind of bookend this this period of intense associational activity where you can find the creation of clubs to do with flower arranging to do with uh, economic improvement to do with um, politeness and uh at what kind of uh, you know anti-dueling there's a movement to, to stop people from dueling with each other because it's seen as antagonistic to the social order so uh, what you get is a kind of immense flourishing of social interaction and what's very striking about this is that it's oftentimes um Without confessional identity attached into it, so these are spaces and places which, on occasion, uh, Catholics and and Anglicans, for instance, can can exchange ideas, can get to know each other socially in a way that's free from the confessional uh, definitions. Perhaps most notably in 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 the in the rise of the the, the Masonic lodges uh, through the period, where uh, there's quite commonly a. a the the lodge is articulated as a space outside of those confessional or uh, 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 definitions and those confessional categories. So you can go to the lodge and leave that identity at the door and find yourself socializing with people for whom you would normally not have any uh, place to meet other than a location like the lodge.
0: You describe those communities of interest, but you also describe other areas where this interaction took place. And I I was fascinated by how you describe these various public spheres. There was the official one, which as you uh, enter this period, you describe as being in decline and it's being superseded by these other public spheres, the counter public sphere and the unofficial public sphere. I was wondering if you could describe what was going on there. Well, part of the suggestion of of that section of the
1: book is to think about the ways in which um, information gets transmitted and uh, people come to know... uh, about things and about each other. And part of the the idea was to map out the ways in which certain places and spaces had traditionally been the way in which the state would communicate with its population and to see in the period the emergence of much more fluid, much more... um, open spaces of communication that uh, allowed people to move outside of the traditional locations of uh, church and state. So what I tried to suggest is that in the period from 1730 onwards, you see the emergence of coffee houses, you see the emergence of taverns, and uh, locations in a sense of uh, social exchange. And I suggest that part of what's taking place in that is the transmission of information and the transmission of ideas and a place and space in which social interaction can take hold. It's not always, by the way, uh, polite and civilized and, and um, you know easy. Uh, these are also places of conflict, uh, of murder, of, viol- of, of interpersonal violence. But they are places in which it doesn't really matter. You're not, you're, you don't make an institutional commitment by walking into them. If you choose to worship at a Presbyterian uh, church, you've made a statement about the kinds of political and social and cultural identity that you you have. If you go to a coffee shop, you haven't. And that allows people to open up those channels. There are occasions in which the coffee shop itself gets identified with political parties or so forth. But broadly speaking, there's a space in which people can move more freely and engage with ideas. So, what I do is I suggest in that in that chapter that there are these places are burgeoning in the mid decades of the eighteenth century, and similarly, you can see that not just happening in urban spaces but in rural locations too there are ways and means of of socializing with people in in, in rural venues, which is of interest to me as well. This is sometimes it can be seen that the enlightenment is something that happens in the key locations of Paris or London or Edinburgh. In fact, what you find is that these discussions are also taking place in the villages and towns of, of rural Ireland. Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, as part of that dynamic, what, what uh, you point out is that this is happening at a time in which the, uh, so the, 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 the state or uh, the, the, the leadership, political leadership of Ireland is sort of gradually unclenching just a little bit to where they're no longer uh, closely uh, supervising or sponsoring a lot of these events. And so that, in effect, helps to free up the discourse because there's no longer a perception of monitoring or, uh, or, 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 or dictation of what should be discussed in what context.
1: That's right. I mean, you can see this with the ways. I mean, I, I use the theatre, for example, as a barometer of this, the ways in which the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the King's representative in Ireland, um, traditionally would be a sponsor of a number of these kinds of uh, performances. So you'll see it by, you know, in, uh, in England, you'll see it as by King's command. But in Ireland, it's by command of the Lord Lieutenant. Those kinds of sponsored events are where the play has been chosen to permit a political message and disseminate it into uh, the political community. Those things wane away to some extent. And what you see is the emergence, in fact, of what I was suggesting is is in some sense a sort of counter or unofficial world of uh, club life and, and, and charitable works. They step into the breach. And so you'll see, for example, the Dublin Society sponsoring... Performances, quite frequently, charitable performances in favour of different organisations and so forth. It's one way to generate money. The other thing that uh, I think, in that regard, is is interesting to note. In a sense, is that the with the with the famine years and so on, there is a question around uh, what the financial capacity of the state can be and how far the state's writ can run in a world in which uh, they have struggled to provide um, a safe environment for its citizenry. So. Into that space comes the world of voluntary association, of charity life, of people setting up things for themselves. And so there's a kind of generalised, what you might describe as a depoliticisation of uh, Irish intellectual life um, in this middle period where people don't look to the state for the answer in the way that they subsequently do as things, you know, the politicisation ratchets back up again in the later decades.
0: That is how you frame the uh, ending of this period is that you start to see politics becoming more oppositional and as I, I like the way you put it about how the state recolonizes the public sphere. what exactly brings that about and, and how does that set the stage for the uh, the, the, the final uh, period that you described like the political enlightenment
1: well I think there there are in a sense two stages to that the first is that, again we're well, they the start with another generational change. By the time you're looking at the um, the, the, the close of uh, the closing decades of the 18th century, those people who were primarily active in the 1730s and 1740s and 50s, uh, they've left the, the the political stage, and once again you have a kind of recalibration of interests and concerns. There's two other state. There's two other elements to this. One is the kind of state itself finds a kind of new capacity. Uh, there's a crucial crisis it seems to me um, around the money bill where they suddenly the the state finds itself back in surplus, and so what we find is that the state now has the ability and the capacity to re engage with the social environment um, the other The other interest in this is that they then try and find a new a new ch- they're faced with a new kind of challenge that out of that world of sociability and engagement comes what becomes termed the Catholic question. How far, in a sense, the Catholic community, and this also extends to Presbyterians, but it's known as the Catholic question. But how far those communities that are not confessionally aligned with the Irish state and aren't Anglican can be recognised um, politically and given rights uh, and and empowered to to act politically. That question becomes um, a matter of intense political dispute, notably not just between Catholics and Protestants, but within the uh, Anglican community itself, as people feel that, they, that there's, there's a range of options that are open. So that question challenges the assumptions of uh, the state settlement of 1688 to 91, that in a sense, Ireland will be an Anglican state led up by a, a, a king which is shared with, with Britain. And re-engages people into the political discussion. You can see this with the emergence primarily of the volunteer movement of the 1770s and early 1780s.
0: You talk about how the political enlightenment took place or the the discourse took place in the context of four languages. And you describe them as as law, history, sentiment and manners. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that and, and, and what you mean by those four categories of language.
1: Yeah, I think <coughs> excuse me, I think the, the way I tried to start to configure this was to think about this question of, of politicization and the ways in which the problem um, of reorganizing the Irish state might have a kind of intellectual and imaginative consequence. And what I started to find was that the, within these various literatures in each case, what you were starting, what, what I was starting to see, what, what I see emerging is, is a debate, oftentimes in slightly coded form, about the relationship between what I, I term it—the the sentiments of the state and the manners of the people—that there's a disconnect in Ireland uh, between the confessional identity of the polity, it thinks of itself as Anglican, you are supposed to be Anglican to engage in it. Those people who are Catholic or Presbyterian are pushed aside. But the population, as you pointed out earlier, are predominantly Catholic. Now this in a kind of even in Anchon Regime terms produces a kind of disconnect. If you go and read Montesquieu, for example, what you're seeing in Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws is an argument that an efficiently run state system has a kind of language Uh, Or has a a direct relationship between the sentiments of the state, so the legislative people. Uh, The legislators share the same kind of moral code and, and system as the population they try and govern. That doesn't happen in Ireland. So that sets a challenge for Ireland in this period. And the Catholic question becomes the litmus test of this. How do we relate to, as a state and as legislators, the vast body of the populace that the state is supposed to govern. That then produces four different dialogues, it seems to me, which are concentrated around issues of law, how the state acts, around issues of history, where the state has come from, how it has come to be in the position of governance that it is. But also, interestingly, I think, and this, I think, draws partly on that kind of Montesquieu language, a concern for... The sentiments of people, how they act, how they behave, what they're really thinking and the manners that they perform publicly. So the dialogue between personal and interior, interior understanding and social performance. So in each of those cases I try and map out in those four different languages the ways in which I can see a crisis emerging and a kind of cultural expression of anxiety about the relationship between sentiments and manners and between law and history. And you can then go down into these these genres of writing. So if you look at antiquarianism, you can see a discussion about, well, how civilised are we as a community? Um, When was civility really taking hold in Ireland? And this partly gets encoded into a debate about the 1641 rising and how far... Uh, the Catholics who rose up against uh, the Protestant state in that period um, were really civilised or are they barbaric or how are we dealing with this? How do we narrate this question? You can find it also expressed interestingly, I think, in the in the novels and plays of the period where you can see a genuine concern with the question of whether or not interior personal identity is properly mapped out onto questions of public performance and public identity or whether or not, effectively, what you're looking at is a series of masks and seats. And um, what, what, there's a whole series of kind of reveals that are built into these novels and plays where you find out who people really are and what they really think. And what and the disconnect between social performance and personal identity is, is examined and peeled apart.
0: It, it seems that what's happening in the 1770s and 1780s is you're seeing that, that, the, the breakdown of the civility. And you you uh, you describe that there's this polarization that's taking place as this debate takes hold, and then as the sides are, are, are separating in a way that they uh, had not since the beginning of the century, that they're becoming increasingly radicalized, and, and, and uh, the, the, the 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 divide between them is becoming uh, unbridgeable.
1: That's right. I mean, I, the way I start to map this out is to sort of um, break up the term of politicization and to think about. In a sense, it's, it's constituent parts. So I think about uh, part of what I'm trying to suggest is that what happens is a process whereby, first and foremost, people think about the question of, in effect, they repoliticize the population. They begin, You start to look towards the state for answers to questions of economics or morality or social order, which in an earlier period, they were less inclined. This middle period, I think they were less inclined to think that the state had the answer. So that question of of looking to the the polity as a solution to problems of 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 um, social order, in a sense, pushes them into this discussion. And what they find is that there's no shared agreement. So in the period in the late 1770s and early 1880s, what you begin to see is a process of what I describe as as a, a kind of polarization taking hold, where people with different types of solution find each other on, antagonistic to each other. So those who try and solve the problem empirically tend to find, using that Enlightenment methodology of empiricism that was so important in the earlier phase, they offer up a certain set of solutions about internal reform, uh, limited uh, extension of, of rights. Their primarily, primary concern is, in fact, with the relationship between the Irish state and the British state and giving the Irish state system more autonomy. On the other side, you have a group that are um, thought to be, that I that I map as being more concerned with rationalist approaches to the political system. And they're the ones who drive forward the Catholic question and see these the, the, the opportunity to reshape the polity away from its confessional identity somewhat and to give Catholics more of an, a sense of engagement and more of a sense of um, empowerment within the system. And that produces a debate between those who want, in effect, the, the solution that's offered. The, the, the victory of the, the volunteers, which we associate with Grattan's parliament, is the victory of the empirical wing. They get rid of uh, Poyning's law, which has um, limited the capacity of the Irish parliament to enact its own legislation. Um, It needs to be vetoed under Pointing's law by the uh, English Privy Council. And it removes um, the Declaratory Act. So the final court of uh, settlement is no longer the House of Lords in England um, in legal cases. So that frees up the autonomy of the state. The volunteers then push on and they try and uh, argue for the extension of the franchise to include property Catholics. And that is when the process of polarisation really pulls the volunteer movement as such apart into conflicting wings. The final stage of that process is uh, a radicalization one in which the solution to these problems of polarisation and of politicisation are ultimately driven, uh, driving people towards uh, acts of violence. And so in the 1790s, what you begin to see is the final breakup of that possibility of civilized discussion and of civility as, as a whole and people turning to uh, violence as a means of enforcing their chosen solution on each other. And that's why I describe in the end of the, uh, 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 the, the final chapter of the book is entitled An Enlightened Civil War. It's precisely because I see it as a debate within the Enlightenment that has effectively broken down into interpersonal violence.
0: It seems that the breakdown is in itself a, a statement of the the limits, or perhaps the failure, of the Irish Enlightenment. And that the ability to have that civil discourse, that project of civility, is already shredding when you see this recourse to violence. But when it breaks out into open warfare between the two sides, it, you know, it, in a sense, it's it's almost a reversion back to the climate of, of the late seventeenth century.
1: I think. The key issue for me is, uh, in some senses, you're right. I, the, the one area I think what I'm trying to suggest is taking place is that the terms of art are somewhat different. Um, by the time you get to 1798 and the rising of 1798, where you have, um, in some ways, a, the United Irish movement is, is something I associate primarily with that rashless wing attempting to create an Irish state which is color is, is colorblind confessionally. And is associated, um, associates itself indeed at times with French style republicanism of the 1790s. That that puzzle of how then that kind of interpersonal violence and the, the collapse of Ireland into a, uh, into a kind of civil war in the year of 1798 recasts the problem. Um, it also, by the way, collapses the solution that the empirical wing had offered of a kind of autonomous state parliament in Dublin. Uh, somewhat autonomous from, from British rule and so in 1800 you get the passage of, of uh, the Act of Union um, which integrates the Irish Parliament into Westminster so neither side win but what it does do in that period is we recast the question away from question of civility and towards the question of what Irishness is and how in a sense um, who's Irish becomes the big discussion point Um, It's not a question anymore of of confessional dogma, as it was, I suspect, more in the 17th century, nor is it a question of who's civil in the 18th century. Now the question is one of, of national and political identity and the correlation between ethnic identity and political identity. So who's Irish becomes a real challenge to work out in the 19th century. And that's where you do get the emergence, if you like, of the na- of nationalism and of unionism, offering different kinds of answers to that puzzle as to who is the, uh, a legitimate actor on th- in the state system as it's then reconfigured.
0: In the way that you frame it, it seems as though that the Irish enlightenment could be argued as a failure. And yet in your final chapter, you talk about it, how in some ways it's a failure and, Yet in other ways, it's a success. And I was wondering if you could speak to those elements that you see as where the Irish Enlightenment has uh, it, it basically introduced uh, permanent changes in, in, in terms of Ireland and, and, and reshaped the way that the Irish thought of themselves.
1: Well, I think, I mean, that rehearsing the arguments primarily in there. I mean, one of the things I think is is fundamental about the identification of an Irish Enlightenment is it it. By recognizing its existence, it distorts that sense of the permanence of religious antagonism as a characteristic of the island that in a sense, you can write the history of Ireland in it as, as a singular narrative structure which begins with the plantations of Ulster and the intrusion of of um, Protestantism as a problematic entity that plays itself out through into the 20th century and indeed into the 21st. What I try and suggest is that the Enlight- part of the Enlightenment's legacy may well be to problematize those binary codings of Ireland as defined by uh, religious identity, uh, the difference between Catholic and Protestant, mapping onto to questions of na- nationalism and unionism and so forth. And that the Irish Enlightenment also then situates, by identifying an Irish Enlightenment, we can also start to situate the Irish condition as one which is um, one variable within the possibilities of a a modernising world. There's a tendency, I think, to think about Ireland as, as sort of having missed the modern moment. It didn't have an Enlightenment, ergo, it never really became modern. And so what you're looking at is a kind of primordial conflict of religious antagonism. Once you identify the religious enlightenment as an entity, then we start to have to rethink the ways in which we describe um, the modern moment in the British Isles. Um, the process of secularisation isn't necessarily a given, and it's it's perfectly p- compatible to be religious and modern um, in interesting and complex ways. But that. Recodes the whole set of discussions that might be had around questions of uh, the development of the intellectual life of the country and the wider context in which it operates.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. Well, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yeah, um, funnily enough, um, following on from that last remark, uh, one of the things that I was interested in by the end of the uh, writing the, the book was precisely that question of, of the relationship, if you like, between uh, ideas of modernity and of uh, religious identity. Um, the, uh, the simplifying narrative of modernity as secularizing in its import is uh, challenged by the idea of, of an enlightenment in Ireland, which then, you know, Ireland is still in the mid-19th century and into the 20th century. One of the um, by the mid-20th century is still a very church-going society. Um, so one of the things I decided to try and tease out is is that dialogue between uh, secularism and modernity. And so when I'm funnily enough, I, I teach a course in my uh, on to my undergraduate students here, uh, which I co-teach with some colleagues, which takes them through a kind of um, a Voltaire to Freud th- through the intellectual history of, of Europe and cultural history of Europe. So we look at issues around um the Enlightenment, about the French Revolution, uh, through to uh, the age of ideologies with Marx and uh, John Stuart Mill and so forth. Um, All of that, I said, well, there was was no textbook for this, so I decided to sit down and write one, (laughs) foolishly. So I'm currently in the middle of trying to write a textbook uh, entitled The Cultural History of Europe, 1688 to 1914, which will give a kind of primer for thinking about um, these kinds of debates and the ways in which uh, Europe as a whole... Uh, navigated the question of uh, that kind of modern moment. Um, it begins by arguing, in effect, that in the period of the late 17th century into the early 18th century, there was a turn towards thinking about the human being at, at the, the root of philosophical understanding. And it ends with the argument that, in effect, with the writings of, of Freud, uh, the philosophies of Nietzsche, um, and indeed with the with the social consequences of the of the first world war, that trust in the um, identity, the, the holistic nature of the individual is collapsed, and so we have an arc of thinking of, of a period of time which arcs across those two centuries in which the nature of the human being is kind of offered up as a a kind of a given that there 's a holistic unitary and coherent self. And we can explore what that then does to a whole range of discourses and discussions. So it's a nice small book, as you can imagine, but that's what I'm trying to write.
0: (laughs) Well, it sounds like a great project. Michael Brown, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity.